and the glory forever. Amen. Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Romans 8, 18 through 25, and verse 28. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes what they are for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So for the past several weeks, we have been looking at how people have shared their faith with others and We've been talking about how to share our faith and invite people to experience the loving Christian community that we have here at Ebenezer. And sometimes to introduce the talk for the day, we have been showing on the video what we call fishing stories. Stories of people who have reached out to others. And we have another fishing story for you today. So uh, we're going to hear about Brian and Holly and Chris and Chrissy and uh, their fishing story. So let's watch together. We were at a t-ball game for our oldest, and I was just sitting there holding uh, our son Dylan, who was three months old, and um, Chrissy was walking by and stopped and said, oh, uh, how old is your baby? And I said, oh, he's three months old. She goes, oh, I have a three-month-old, too. I said, oh, you do? I said, oh, that's cool. I said, three months old? I said, so was she born in January? And she was like, yeah, me too. And I was like, yeah, January 27th, me too. And she said, where did you have her, have him? And I said, Stafford Hospital. She was, me too. Mm-hmm. Little did we know we had the babies three hours apart, but we didn't know each other. We feel like God has been trying to have us meet since January of 2014. And we did not actually meet until... March, I think, of 2014, but God placed us together on a t-ball team after he tried to place us together at the hospital. She was on Facebook, and I became friends with her on Facebook, and she had talked about Connor passing away, and I, and I didn't know how he passed away, but a couple weeks later, she asked for everybody on his birthday to help celebrate his birth by doing something fun with their own children and hashtag the picture. I told Chris, I'm like, we need to go get cupcakes. And he's like, why? I'm like, because we need to celebrate Connor's birthday. So it was it was really cool to, to see people interacting that way and to see this family that had never met Connor 
yet they went through the trouble of letting us know that they cared enough about us to honor our son. I think that right there was the turning point and that for us just cemented, you know, these these wonderful people have been put in our life. So Chrissy had invited me to come to Ebenezer um, and when she first invited me I wasn't really wasn't really in the place to to come and take her up on that invitation. I, I was attached to my church in Woodbridge. Um, that was the church that Connor was baptized in, and that was the pastor who was a part of his funeral service, and that was Connor's church. So I had a lot of anxiety at the thought of leaving that church because I felt like I was leaving a part of Connor. With that being said, we were absolutely noticing that our attendance and the other church was dipping and dipping and dipping. We were starting to find reasons to not go. After one visit here, I knew this this is where I need to be, and thankfully Holly agreed, and she felt the exact same way that I did. I've never walked into a church or walked out of with the feelings that I had from that very first time. I guess I would consider that the start of my faith journey was the moment I stepped into this church for the first time. If you look at our stories, the story of our two families, together you might look at that story and go, oh, that's a cute you know, uh, arrangement of coincidences. But if you look at it from a, through the lens of truth, you can see God moving around you all the time. And so, you know, when I look back on when we first met the Adams and and how you know our relationship kind of uh, took root, and we we grew in our to to a point where we invited them to church. I can look back uh, at all of that and see God's work in it. And so I think an encouragement that that I would give to people is get over the fear that you have, the anxiety, the the apprehension. Yeah, that you know talking about religion gives people today, and just realize that God's putting people in front of you. And he's doing that so that you'll you'll bring them into the community of faith together and you'll grow together. Um, so yeah, if, if I had one encouragement, I would say get out of your own way and let God do the work he's trying to do. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for Brian and Holly and their family, for Chris and Chrissy and their family, and the way in which you use circumstances and situations bring glory and honor to your name and to encourage others in their faith journey. And we thank you that we get to partner with them and with others in this way as you work in our midst. And now, Father, with grateful hearts, we turn our attention to your word and the, the way in which you use your word by your spirit to encourage and strengthen and even challenge us to go out and live as your people. May we be open and receptive to it today. We pray that in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Her name was Jenny, and she was in her late 20s, early 30s. She was married to Tom. They had two children around preschool age. Jenny came to see me one day. She was concerned about her husband, Tom, who had recently declared to her that he was an atheist and an agnostic. He wasn't like that when they were dating and when they got engaged and married. He declared himself at that time to be a Christian, although not overly involved in his Christian faith or involved in the church. After they got married, they attended 
worship sporadically and and then they started having children. And when they had the children baptized, Tom and Jenny stood before God in the congregation and took a vow to raise their child in a Christian home under the inspiration and guidance of their church. And they wanted to take that vow seriously so they got regularly involved and connected in the life of the church. But then over time, as Jenny continued to grow in her faith, Tom seemed to stop and started to drift away and came to worship with Jenny and the kids less and less often until finally he didn't come at all. And as Jenny gently nudged and started pushing, Tom finally said, look, I am not going anymore. I just don't believe it. Jenny couldn't believe that Tom had come to that conclusion. And so she came to me and she asked me if there's anything she could say to Tom to help him regain his faith. And we talked about that. We prayed for Tom. I gave her a couple of books to read. And as she was leaving my office, she said, well, Pastor Mark, would you be willing to talk to Tom? And I told her, look, if Tom is willing to talk with me, I'm happy to speak with him about this. Just invite him to give me a call if he wants to talk. And I really didn't expect to hear from Tom. Two weeks later, he called. We got together. And Tom began explaining to me why he didn't believe in God and the Bible and all that religious mumbo-jumbo. He told me uh, about an experience he had around Thanksgiving time of 2004. His 15-year-old nephew died of cancer. After about a three-year battle with the disease, as many people prayed and many people uh, thought God was going to heal his nephew, his, his nephew died. What kind of God lets a 15-year-old die of cancer? Tom wanted to know. And then just a few weeks after that experience, on December 26th, the day after Christmas of 2004, maybe you remember, the Indonesian tsunami happened. Tom saw the pictures on the television screen in the evening news. Saw the pictures on the website. Pictures of destruction and disaster. 280,000 people killed. What kind of a God allows that sort of thing to happen? So Tom decided that day, after Christmas, he didn't believe in God anymore. And in our conversation, he talked about other tragedies, other things that have happened in his life and in this world. And then he asked me the question, the question that everybody asks. How can a good, loving, all-powerful God allow such evil suffering and tragedy in this world? And let me stop the story right there and affirm that Tom's question is a compelling one. It's a fair one. It's a question that not just atheists and agnostics and skeptics ask. It's a question all of us have to ask at some point in our lives because we all have to deal with the reality that there is some stuff in life that is painful and tragic and evil and unjust. And how do you reconcile that with the, the Christian belief that we are ruled by a God who is all-powerful, all-good, all-loving, all-wise. Philip Yancey calls this the question that will not go away. And you and I need to understand how to answer that question. What would you say to Tom? What would you say to yourself? How do you answer the question that everybody asks? In the New Testament, Peter, in 1 Peter, writes these words. He says, we should always be ready to give an answer to those who ask us about the hope we have within us. 
So how do you answer Tom's question? Because the truth is, if you and I are going to have spiritual conversations with people, if we're going to risk talking about our faith at some point, someone's going to ask us this question. Because this is the question everybody asks. So welcome back to our series, Go Fish, as we try to work our way through this calling that Jesus places on us to be fishers of men, to go fishing for people. Remember, we've been saying all along, Jesus, when he called his first disciples, they were many of them were fishermen, and Jesus said, you've been fishing for fish, now I'm going to teach you to fish for people. And they did. They shared their faith. They, they told the good news of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead, his, his death on the cross for our sins, and people began to, to receive salvation and new life in Jesus' name and be filled with the Holy Spirit and the church exploded and the church continues that good work of sharing God's love with the world. But in spite of that, we have a world that is not all good and loving. We have a world where 14-month-old infants die of SIDS where 15-year-olds die of cancer where a loving father of three gets killed in a car accident. I've got stories, you've got stories of times when we stood by a casket or sat in a hospital waiting room or turned on the television news and we saw something horrific, something awful, something tragic, something unfair, and we just wonder. We ask the question that everybody asks. I remember my freshman year in college, I took philosophy of religion. Wow, did that mess me up. Our philosophy professor talked about the pain and suffering in the world and the goodness and love of God, and he says it, it, it seems like an irreconcilable contradiction. And he said this, he said, if God is all good, then he isn't all powerful. And if God is all powerful then he isn't all good. Because if God were both good and powerful, there would not be evil, pain, suffering, and tragedy in the world. And that question, or that scenario, that tension that he brought up, bothered me and almost caused me to lose my faith. I remember going home for Christmas break after that first semester, not sure what I believed or if I believed anything. And we had this little plaque on the wall by the kitchen sink. I remember as a kid growing up, my parents, when they would have me do dishes after supper, one of my chores, before the days of dishwashers, I was the dishwasher. And there's a little plaque over the sink, quoting a, a verse from the poet Browning. It said, God is in his heaven, all's right with the world. And as a kid growing up watching dishes in my home, safe and secure, I believed that. Now as a college student coming home, seeing the world differently, I read that and I thought, what world are we living in? All is not right with the world. But how could a good, loving, all-powerful God allow that? That's the question. And in our few moments together this morning, we're going to try to answer that, at least partially, because here's, here's the reality. It's a complex question, and the Bible doesn't give just one single simple answer. The Bible offers a, a number of answers to that question, and we need to try to put the answers together to form a, a more complete picture. So we're going to take just a few minutes and go through some of the answers the Bible gives to explain the evil, suffering, and tragedy that we experience in this life. And here's the first answer. The Bible tells us the devil is real. 
People don't like that answer. When I told Tom that answer, he didn't like it at all. People would rather reject the devil as some superstitious, mythological creation of an ancient superstitious culture that, you know, people didn't understand how things worked back in those days, so they just blamed the devil for everything. People get sick, oh, the devil did it. Thunderstorm blows through town, oh, it's the devil, right? Well, clearly, as we have grown in our understanding of the world and as God has revealed more truth to us, we begin to understand and recognize that not everything tragic or bad that happens is because of the devil, but the Bible still tells us the devil is real. He doesn't have horns and a pitchfork like the pictures we see. He's a malevolent spirit determined to destroy God's work in the world. He wants to deceive us. He wants to discourage us. He wants to destroy all that is good in the world. And for whatever reason, we don't understand it fully right now, but God allows the devil to exist for a season. And we're in that season. Jesus himself had to deal with the devil in the Gospels. You read that. The Apostle Paul says we're in a battle against spiritual forces of wickedness. Now we're we're promised someday that The devil will be totally defeated and destroyed, but that day is not yet. And until that day, the Bible tells us that we should be aware of the devil's schemes. And the Bible tells us to be self-controlled and alert for your enemy, the devil, prowls around. Friends, I'm not one who sees a demon in every bush. And I'm not one who says, the devil made me do it. Remember Flip Wilson, Geraldine, right? The devil can't control our behavior. He can only influence it, influence our thinking. But here's what I've discovered over the years. Some things are so awful, so horrific, so evil, that it makes you come to the conclusion that just maybe the devil's real, just like the Bible says, just like Jesus said. That's not a cop-out. That's just a recognition of reality. And I know people don't like that. But just because they don't like that, it doesn't mean it isn't true. The devil is real. And we experience that. In life, and that's why there is some level of evil, suffering, and tragedy and injustice in the world. Now, here's the second answer the Bible gives is that we have free will. God has entrusted you and me with the ability to make choices. We are free moral agents with the ability to make choices, and with choices come consequences. And sometimes, when outside the realm of God's wisdom we make choices, it brings negative consequences. Painful consequences. Sometimes other people make choices and those negative consequences impact us because we're in a relationship with them or on the highway with them or in, the, in whatever location they're at, right? Because we, we interact with each other and in relationship with each other, not only do our choices affect us, but our choices affect others and vice versa. But we have this ability to make choices. God has given us this. And it's meant to be a, a wonderful gift, but it's also a very dangerous gift. You're here in worship today because you chose to be. Well, most of you. Some of you are teenagers or children. Maybe you didn't choose to be here. Maybe your parents forced you to be here. But let me just say, you chose to obey your parents, so good for you. Right? At some level, we all choose. And because we choose... We recognize that God has given us this freedom to choose. Now, people ask, well, why would God give us this freedom to choose, to make choices, to be free moral agents? Here's why. So that love can exist. Because love can only exist in an environment where we're free to make choices. Because love is a choice we make, not a feeling we feel. And we must choose to love. 
And because God wants us to love Him and because God loves us and wants this relationship of love, God, God creates an environment of free choice so we can freely choose to love God. You can't force somebody to love you. You must give them the choice. I can remember when I was 17 years old, my high school sweetheart broke up with me. We'd been dating for about a year. She decided she didn't love me anymore. Whatever love means to a 17-year-old, right? She broke up with me. And I was determined I was going to get her back. So I did everything I could to make her love me. Cards, flowers, phone calls, candy. I was stalking her. She found somebody else she liked better and started dating him. And I realized, I realized... There was nothing I could do to make her love me. She would have to freely choose that or not. And she chose not. So, in her freedom, she broke my heart. And in my freedom, I egged her house at 2 o'clock in the morning. It was great. (laughs) That'll teach her. But see, this gift of freedom, this gift of freedom, we make choices. The same freedom to choose that allows Mother Teresa to become Mother Teresa allowed Adolf Hitler to make his choices and become Adolf Hitler. See, this is the, this is God's great gift, but also His great risk in entrusting us with this freedom. He wants so desperately for love to exist, He's, He's willing to take that risk. It's an awesome responsibility to be able to choose. And so people sometimes say, well, if God is willing to give us the gift of free will, then doesn't that mean God isn't in total control? Well, this is what's amazing about God's sovereignty. While God doesn't control every decision we make, God uses choices and decisions to bring about His will and His purposes. As we heard in the Scripture today, God works all things together for good, including the poor choices and the painful consequences that come from living in a world where we all have free will. Imagine for a moment a a master chess player. This is the best way I can think about it. Imagine a master chess player in a chess match against a novice, beginner chess player. And the chess master knows because he's so good and he knows every possible move that could be made. The chess master knows that the minute he moves, he has total control of the board, no matter what the novice does. The novice is going to make free choices and and move their pieces according to their free will. But the chess master knows, whatever you do, I'm going to be able to do what I do. To win the match. And so it is with God. He allows us the freedom to make choices. But he knows how to use those choices and work all things together for good. Ultimately, he's in control. Ultimately, he wins the board. Because he's in total control. Even in the midst of our free will. He does work all things together for good. It doesn't mean all things are good. It just means he knows how to use it for his purposes. So the devil is real, and we have free will to make choices. And that brings a lot of pain, suffering, and evil into our world, both of those reasons. That that accounts for a lot of it, but not all of it. So one of the things I said to Tom that I often say around here, and I know people don't always like when I say it because it sounds so trite, but it is so true, and it's the best way I know to think about it. I, I, I say sometimes, this is earth, not heaven, right? This is earth, not heaven. If you go around expecting earth to be heaven, you'll be frustrated, disappointed, and bitter 
for most of your life. Because for, for reasons we've already talked about and reasons we don't fully understand, in our world, there's a brokenness that's part of our existence. Paul gets to it today in Romans where he says, all of creation is groaning in frustration. That, that, that things aren't exactly right. There's some beautiful things in our world. We, we, we see the beauty on a spring day like this and we say, God is wonderful. But we can also see ugliness. Beauty and brokenness side by side. That's the reality of the world in which we live. And in a broken world where all of, frustra- where all of creation is groaning in frustration, there's things like cancer and SIDS and Parkinson's disease and dementia and Alzheimer's and traffic accidents. All kinds of things. And the reality is, it, the Bible tells us that it's going to be this way for, for reasons we can't fully understand. It's going to be this way. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. But the promise is this, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. That this is not the end. Notice what Paul says today in the Scripture. He says, our present suffering cannot compare to the glory that will one day be ours in Christ Jesus. So we Christians, we we live with this dual vision. We go through this world recognizing that it's both beauty and brokenness side by side. But we anticipate our adoption into the world yet to come, where all is as God intended. There's no more pain, there's no more sorrow, there's no more disease, there's no more tragedy. That's the world we're heading to. And Jesus says, we're not there yet, you're not there yet, you're going there, but you're not there yet. Until then, you'll have tribulation. But I've overcome the world. And so what's been so beautiful about the church is that the church has understood that God never wants to waste our pain. That when we experience suffering and tragedy, it's not that God sent it or God caused it, It's that God wants to somehow use that to overcome evil with good. We often think when something terrible happens, that God is now on trial. Like God needs to explain Himself to us. That God needs to give us a reason that makes sense to us. What if it's not that at all? What if it's just the opposite? What what is it? Maybe when something terrible happens, God's not on trial, we're on trial. That God is saying, I want you to respond to these circumstances, even though you don't understand why it happened or how it happened and all that. I want you to respond in a way that allows you to overcome evil with good. And I'll tell you, the church has been at its greatest when it's done that. When the church has stopped shaking a fist in heaven and saying, why God? But instead rolled up her sleeves and said, what God? What do you want me to do? How can I serve you in the midst of this pain, this suffering, this evil. And I told Tom about that. I told Tom what this church did during the tsunami in Indonesia. Over $16,000 we raised to send for efforts. The, the truckloads full of supplies we sent over there. The way in which not only our church, but churches and Christians across the world responded to that tragedy. Not to curse God, but to be instruments of God's light and goodness in the midst of all of that. And when you look down through history, what you notice is that it's not been the skeptics and the scoffers and the atheists and the agnostics who've responded in times of tragedy and suffering and evil. It's been the Christians, the church, the people of God who started hospitals and orphanages and homeless shelters, and reformed prisons, and ended slavery, and started soup kitchens, and hospice. Now the church is not perfect, we all know that, we get it. But the church understands 
that in this world there is evil, pain, and suffering because this is earth, not heaven. But it's been those who understand that there is a heaven who have done the greatest good in the midst of this earth. Amen? I I think about what this church has done I mean, last week with the, the mission expo in the gathering room and I walked through there and saw all the ways in which this church is being an instrument of love and goodness in the midst of our community and around the world. And I think about the, the house we built for Habitat for Humanity these past couple days and how, again, uh, the, the spirit of love and joy as we were doing that work, it was the kingdom of God on display. You know, the truth of the matter is the purpose of life is to grow our soul. It's not to have a perfectly happy, content, comfortable, secure, safe life. It's to grow our soul. And I can't understand it all, but God allows us to live in an environment where there is evil, pain, suffering, justice, because God trusts that we'll use the gift of free will He gives us to get better instead of bitter and to work through whatever disappointment and pain and sorrow we have, knowing that this present suffering cannot compare to the Glory that will one day be ours in Christ Jesus. And that God can and will work all things together for good. That's what I told Tom. And he still wasn't crazy about that answer. And I understand. So I told him one more thing that I'm about to tell you now. That in this life, we'll never understand all the reasons. It's like God has given us some answers, but not all of them. You see the picture up on the screen. I have a dog named Mac. Um, Mac is a smart dog. He is. I think he's the smartest dog in the world. And we all know that dogs are smarter than cats to begin with. But man, Mac is smarter than all the dogs I know. He's smart. Smarter than your dog. I can Trust me. But as smart as Mac is, his intelligence, his ability to understand and comprehend is limited, right? What would you say to me if I said, I'm going to teach Mac all about quantum mechanics? What would you say? You'd say, Mac's not going to understand quantum mechanics. What if I said, I'm going to teach Mac to write the great American novel? You say, no, Mac can't, Mac can't do quantum mechanics. Shoot, I can't even do quantum mechanics. Mac can't write the great American novel. He's a dog. His, his understanding is limited. Now, he's smart. He can do some great things. But he's not that smart. Can I tell you, when it comes to understanding all there is to understand about God and His ways, you and I are kind of like golden retrievers trying to figure out quantum mechanics. There comes a point where we say, man, my understanding is limited. That's what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so are God's thoughts above our thoughts. And I know that that's not a great answer for people who want to have an answer for everything. So here's what I say. Can you trust that there is an answer, even though you don't know what it is? At some point. Because here's here's what God has done. God has given us lots of great answers. I always tell people, I believe in light of the answers, not in spite of the answers. God's given us a lot of great answers, but he hadn't given us all. And so here's what happens in your life and in my life. We get to the place where the answers end. And when we get to the place where the answers end, that's when God gives us something else. He gives us promises. And you and I have to make a choice. Will I trust in the promises when I don't have the answers? Can I trust that God is good enough, wise enough, 
strong enough that even when I don't understand, when I'm staring at the casket of a child, when I'm sitting in a hospital waiting room, when I am watching the evening news, and I shake my head, and I don't understand, and I ask, why, God, why? Can I in that moment understand that I won't have the answers, but I do have the promises? See, I love what what Paul says, hope is necessary in order to live out the Christian life. It doesn't mean we check our brain at the door and we just believe something blindly, but you do have to have enough faith, enough hope, that you recognize, I don't have all the answers, but I trust in the one who does. And that's when faith stops being an intellectual exercise and it starts being a life-changing truth. And so, I just remember what Paul says in Corinthians, now we understand only in part, now we see only partially. Someday we will understand fully, someday we'll understand uh, and, and see clearly. But until that day, get as many answers as you can. But when you get to the place where the answers end, you've got to decide, am I going to trust in the promises? Tom wasn't there yet. And his family eventually moved away. I don't know whatever happened. But um, what I can tell you is, when you ask the question that everybody asks, you always end up in that same place where the answers end. And you and I have to make a choice about how we'll live out our lives. But if we choose wisely, our stories can be a lot like Holly and Brian's story and Chris and Chrissy's story. How even in the midst of brokenness and tragedy, God works all things together for good. So let's live out our lives, sharing our faith, Trusting where we don't have answers. And knowing that even when we don't know it all, we know enough to respond with hope. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we give you...